0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice, and not really live, but at Storymakers. So if you're there, cheer. We're really excited to be part of Storymakers Conference this year. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm Leah Everting, and I'm a writer at a television company and also a fairy tale fanatic.
1: I'm Caitlin Sangster, and I wrote the Last Star Burning series, and I am also a fairy tale fanatic i'm i'm actually way more into like aliens and stuff so
2: i'm kristen evans and i'm an acquisitions editor at deseret book
3: hi and i'm don juan song i'm a literary agent at howard morheim literary agency uh i do mostly science fiction fantasy for adults ya and middle grade
0: awesome well don juan we're really excited to have you on thanks for coming on the show
3: uh absolutely delighted to be here
0: do you want to take a moment and tell us about the upcoming books you're most excited about from your clients? <laughs> uh,
3: yeah, so I have a debut launching this summer by um, a fellow named Ryan Van Lone. Uh, the book is a sort of swashbuckling fantasy adventure story. Um, it's, it's really wonderful. It's really fantastic. It features two, uh, protagonists who are sort of like an investigative team who get tasked with discovering what happened to uh, a series of missing shipments. And they all go off to sea and end up in adventures with pirates and ancient gods and all kinds of crazy magics.
2: That sounds incredible.
1: <laughs> Who's that by? Did you say?
3: Oh, the author is Ryan Van Lone. Ryan Van Lone. Uh, he's okay. a debut writer, um, and just really one of the most wonderful, nicest people in the industry.
0: Well, today we're excited to jump into the nitty-gritty of creating our own great stories. Um, to get started, we just wanted to pose a general question: What are the essential components to a good story?
3: Components of a, of, of a great story. I mean, for me, it always starts and ends with voice, right? Um, you know, how is the story being told? You know, and you can take any of the great elements—a great character, a great setting, a great situation—but if the voice isn't grabbing you in a certain way. Um, then, you know, for me, it's always going to fall flat. And I think that can mean a much wider range of things than we think of when we talk about voice, right? It can be a super clean commercial style that really fades in the background, right? So we think of like a very commercial thriller has this voice that you don't even notice it's there. It's just moving and moving and and it's designed to be frictionless. Or if you think about something like Tana French on the other end of the spectrum, where it's really luscious, it's really rich, you, you can never not be engaging with that voice, right? But both of those are really determining whether the, that book succeeds or fails. I mean, in you know, the kind of two examples I'm looking at, really character-wise, structure-wise, plot-wise, they're dealing with the exact same material. It's just a very wildly different way of approaching it. And so I think that's the thing that's always going to make a story work or not work for me.
1: I'm already going to throw a wrench into our conversation and deviate off into a question that I didn't actually tell the other people I was going to ask. How do you feel like voice differs between um, adult, YA, and middle grade books? Because you represent all three. Is there mm-hmm. this might be kind of a compliment, complicated question, but do you feel like there's like a stronger feeling of voice in YA books or in adult books? How do you see that?
3: You know, I think the voice between adult YA and middle grade really comes down to the emotional quotient in the story, right? And how forward that is. So I have a very simple rubric that I like to to say a lot about how I see the difference between those three categories, right? So middle grade for me is very much, I don't know what emotions are, so let's go have an adventure instead, right? And then YA would be, oh God, what are all (laughs) the emotions? And then adult is emotions rather embarrassing. Let's not talk about it right? So, you know, I think those three things really define how the voice of your story is going to work, right? So middle grade has to have that adventure component, even if you're doing contemporary, even if you're doing something that's very serious, there's still that element of a kid in a kid's world trying to sort of imagine their life and figure out everything's a puzzle to a child at that age. So even when they're dealing with heavy stuff, then what are you building around it? How are they engaging with that world? And you know how are you seeing it through their perspective so other kids can relate to it, right? And then YA is all about teens trying to figure out like how to be, right? Like they're all on that cusp of like reckoning with what it means to be an adult. And so I think all those emotions are like right at the top or even sort of bubbling over. Um, and then adults, adults, you know, they're bad at talking about stuff, so. <laughs> Thanks. I
4: was just going to say, I think that is easily the best summary of those three distinctions that I have ever heard.
3: <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm inordinately proud of it, so I appreciate that.
0: I was wondering, do you have any tips you tell your authors for developing voice if something's coming across a little flat or maybe, maybe there's too much voice? What do you suggest for them?
3: Um... So a lot of my advice tends to be very contradictory and vague, um, which is the nature of the beast, right? Like writing is a hard thing to talk about. And, you know, there's never going to be like one, two, three, here are the three things you need to do. But when it comes to voice, the thing that I'm always talking about with my writers is, um, you know, what are you trying to convey with the story, right? Like what's the there there of the story? Not just what what is happening, but what is this book about? Why are you writing it? And if you can access that space, then I think you'll get a much more clarity in terms of how you want to tell this story, right? So, you know, I had one of my writers who I was working with them on a project or a number of projects, and I kept feeling like the voice was off. I kept feeling like they were doing this thing where everything was very abstract and you get to an action scene and they would just sort of like step back instead of stepping into the scene. And so the thing that I ended up doing is like keep pushing them in terms of like, okay, Think about what's happening here. What's at risk for this character? If you step back, nothing feels at risk. If you step into the scene, then you have to be putting things on the table in terms of what's at stake. So, you know, I, I've that the voice of the book in particular has become much, much darker and is now almost a horror novel in a way that it hadn't been before. Um but I think they're really getting to the core of the story that they were trying to tell from the from the beginning. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a collaboration. At the end of the day, there's a lot of back and forth. And, you know, that's a conversation that took place over many, many months, many, many hours. And it, it's, it's no, like, just do this, just do that. It's really, you know, that whole saw about like you have block marble and you're just removing things until you find out what's inside of it in terms of a sculptor. It's that kind of thing. It's just like bit by bit paring down to the essential elements.
1: You know, along with that, when I first started working with my agent and then with my editor later, I remember people asking me, um, how do you keep your own creative vision when you have other people telling you what to do? Could you talk about that a little bit? You kind of already touched on it, but...
3: Yeah, I mean, um, I think there are definitely editors and agents who can be a little overbearing in those moments. And I think as writers, you need to remember um, to that it is your story. It is your book at the end of the day. And, you know, for me, I'm always approaching it as a conversation. And I always tell them, listen, it's your call. It's your book. It's the story that you're trying to tell. I think you might be able to get there if you would do this instead. Um, sometimes even really drastic changes, right? Like sometimes even like, Throwing out the whole thing and starting over, right? Uh, That is the thing that we've done. But um, it's hard for writers sometimes to remember um, that it is their story, especially given how much institutional power an editor at a major house has or an agent who's very successful has or, you know, any agent really. So, you know, I think it's very hard for writers to remember that they can say no, and no can be a really, really powerful tool in your toolkit here. So, um, you know, my advice is always know what story you're trying to tell and stick to your guns. Be open to advice, consider it, listen to it, but your instincts are are your instincts and they're the ones that are going to get you there.
1: Someone, I can't remember who it is now, um, gave me some really good advice once. I think she was an editor somewhere. This is really horrible that I'm not <laughs> quoting someone directly. But they said, a lot of times when I give my um, client suggestions, it's a challenge. Like, I'll say, you could do this. There's a problem here in your manuscript. And you could do this. But it's a challenge for them to think of something better.
3: Exactly. Exactly. So e- editorial notes aren't a list of instructions. They're a list of questions. And I think that's the way it works the best. Um, And, you know, my favorite trick is to throw out ideas that I know are bad. Like, I'll deliberately suggest something that's a terrible concept, (laughs) but it gives people something to bounce off of, right? Like, sometimes, like, when you react strongly of, like, oh, I don't want that, I don't like that, that helps clarify what you do want. Yeah. So especially in title conversations, I'll be like, I'll just throw out something I know is just trash and terrible. And they'll be like, I hate that. What if we did this instead? I'm like, great, perfect, we got there. It's
2: hard to create in a vacuum, but it's a lot easier to create when you're spite creating. (laughs) How exactly, many like exactly.
1: crying DM conversations are there in the background because it <laughs> <laughs>
3: I'm very nice to my clients. Yeah. Not
1: sure. Okay. Well, um, to get kind of back on the track that we were talking on before, when you have like really amazing components to your story, if you have an amazing voice, how do you use that to get an agent's attention?
3: You know, I mean, really, there's two main routes to getting an agent's attention, right? One is the, the traditional query uh, process, right, unsolicited queries, and the other is networking and meeting people. Either way around, what you're going to have to be really good at, what you're going to have to really train for is how to pitch, right? Um, and I think this is a skill that a lot of writers kind of dread, Um But it's something that I wish more people would learn to embrace, right? Because no matter what, you're going to have to be good at pitching over the course of your career, right? So, you know, people think it's like, oh, I got an agent, now I'm done. And the bad news is, is that is the first step on a very, very long, very difficult road. And at every step of that process, you're going to have to be able to talk about your book really quickly and really compellingly, right? So no matter how good the voice is, no matter how good the story is, if you can't convince somebody in a short amount of time that they should take a chance on it, then you're never going to get anyone to look at. It. So, you know, in terms of getting to that agent that you want, in terms of convincing someone to take a look, you know, the two main things you really have to have is one is a really, really compelling, really short, really, um, uh, you know, functional and, and uh, grabby pitch, but also you have to have a great first page. You know, um, I cannot tell you how important that first page is. And, you know, Editor, editors, agents, um, and then ultimately readers—all will look at that. And if that first sentence, if that first paragraph, if that first page isn't grabbing you, isn't making you know compelling story promises, isn't giving you a character to root for or at least be interested in, then you're not—you're not, you're not going to get there.
2: Regarding the the pitching thing, is there a way that you recommend people get better at pitching other than just workshopping and workshopping and workshopping?
3: You know, pitching is a skill, right? Um, it's it's not something you're innately good at. Everyone's bad at it to start with, right? Nobody likes doing it. It's a very unnatural way to talk. Um, and the way, like any skill, the way you get better at it is practice. Um, now, if all you do is pitch your work in progress to everyone you know, they're going to murder you <laughs> and kick you out of their lives, right? Like no one's ever going to talk to you again. So the trick that I think really works for me and for other people is learning to Pitch other things, right? Pitching is a skill and like any skill, it can be generically applied across a, a wide range of things. So pay attention to commercials. Stop fast forwarding through them, right? Watch tra- movie trailers, watch ads, read book copy, right? That's going to set you up with the baseline of like, oh, here's how this works. And then practice, right? Start pitching. If you watch a TV show, you like watch a movie, you like go to all of your friends and try to convince them um, why they should like it, what's good about it. If you read a, some, a book that you love, just get other people to read it. And when you do that, do it really intentionally and pay very close attention to people's reactions. Um, when do they lose eye contact? When do they get bored? When do they wander off? Do they respond, you know, very generically or do they respond with enthusiasm? And then, you know, think about that after that conversation and take notes if you can. I mean, don't be a giant weirdo and start taking notes in the middles of a conversation with somebody. But, you know, unless they're cool with that, I don't know. Um, but, you know, be really intentional about it. Think about it as a skill that you can train and then recognize that you can use other things that aren't stories that you've written to learn that skill.
4: Yeah. So follow up question, kind of. So when you've got something that has effectively grabbed your attention and you're requesting pages, what are some common reasons that you then end up rejecting the manuscript?
3: Um, You know, like I said, that first page has to be compelling, right? Um, So if there isn't a voice then you know if there isn't a point of view coming across in those pages then it's going to be very hard for me to want to keep going and and see more um so i think the things you really want to think about is is it clear what book you're writing from the first couple of pages you know and, and by that i don't just mean genre and category although those are really important too i should be able to know is this ya is this a genre book is this a thriller right like there there's i should be able to get at least some kind of vibe of what kind of book i'm looking at from the first few pages but, you know, really what I want is a sense of um, clarity about what this story is and why you wrote this book, right? Um, I want a sense of a point of view coming across in those, in those pages that isn't necessarily intrinsic to this is what the story is, but it's more about who you are and why you think this book matters and why you think this book should be in the world, right? Um, I know that sounds really nebulous because it is it's very hard to identify it. But when you see it, you just feel it, right? Um, that's that's the thing that really comes down to me of that. Like, oh, when I see it, I know it, is when I can sense that this book is coming from a place and was written for reasons. And therefore, I'm excited to put it in the world and other people will be excited to read it.
4: So maybe like really, really over over overly summarized, but you want to know in those first few pages that there is a vision for this book and that it's going to go somewhere.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. And that doesn't mean like, the book's politics were on its sleeve or, you know, it's an issue book or something like that. It really is just like what I I want some sense of what drove you to write this. I want to be able to imagine that you as the writer had a reason to come to this story. And it comes from a really personal experience in a personal place. You know, fiction, I think, is ideally about people at the end of the day. And it's ultimately about the writer.
2: I just want to jump in from the perspective of an acquisitions editor, um, just because, Part of the reason that I usually end up rejecting a manuscript if I've received the pages is, I think it does go along with what you're saying, Wan, about having a vision. Because I, if there's a manuscript I really like and have to and want to support, I end up having to pitch it to a million different people, uh, different teams, marketing, everybody that you can imagine has to listen to me and agree that there's a job to be done with this book, that somebody is going to want to buy it, and. If I don't have a clear sense of who is going to read it and want it from those pages, I'm not going to be able to – I just won't feel confident defending it to everybody else that I work with.
3: Yeah, I used to be an editor, actually, as well. Um, and my first job was on the agenting side, and then I switched to editorial – and, you know, it's, it's ironic because I thought I didn't like pitching, which is why I was like, oh, I don't want to be an agent. I should buy stuff instead of sell stuff. And then I became an editor. And then I was like, oh, all this job is is pitching every single other person in this company about why this book is great. And that, that's how I got good yeah. at it um, was, you know, ironically be on the other side of the fence. So
2: It's a tough skill to learn and it's not very fun.
3: <laughs> no, it's, it's a hard process. But once you get there, it's, it's worth it.
2: So I guess the next question is it seems like agents are always asking for stories that are unique or new or fresh. And since we're kind of in an age where lots of things are retellings or mashups or um, reboots, how true is that really? How original does a manuscript have to be for uh, it to be publishable?
3: Um, so this is going to get wonky for a second here, but yeah, um... Publishing or I'm sorry, storytelling is all about pattern recognition, mm-hmm. right? Like human cognition works on recognizing patterns in the world around us. Um, it's just how our brains are wired. It's how it works. Um, and so stories are are patterns that we see in our lives. And it's a way for us to communicate information to each other. Um, and it's sort of an inter- intergenerational knowledge transfer around things that are dangerous, right, or things that are, are perilous. And that's how we as a society sort of developed. And, and that's sort of my take on it, at least. So all stories are are reconfigurations of patterns that we already know right? There there are all these different elements in terms of this is how people relate. This is how they interact. Um, These are dangers that we see, whether that is a physical danger or, or, you know, an emotional risk in terms of a friendship or a romantic relationship or a parent-child relationship, how those go well, how those go badly. And what we're doing is examining those and re-interrogating those every time we write a story, right? So... there is nothing novel in a book, right? Any story is recombining known elements from other stories. This is where that idea of like, there are only seven plots or 14 plots or whatever the hell it is. I think that's where that comes from. Um, You know, at the end of the day, everything's a retelling. I actually like kind of, I shouldn't say this cuz one of my clients is it does do a lot of work around retellings of, you know, fairy tales and other things like that. Um and I do think it's a powerful idea, but on a personal level, I kind of reject it on some on some level because it's like, oh, these are just stories. Everything is a fairy tale retelling at some point. Everything is a Shakespeare retelling at some point, right? Because all those things are interconnected. So but all of that said, it does have to feel fresh, right? It can't feel really derivative, And this goes back to point of view, right? For me, the thing that is unique and distinct about a book is sensing that a unique and distinct person wrote this book, right? Um, that, That novelty doesn't come from a high concept idea. That comes from a perspective. And that comes from the unique set of experiences that you as a writer, you as a person, went through to get here to write this book at this time, at this point in history, right? Um... So don't obsess over are vampires in or not? Is this too tropey? Is this too that and the other? Everything's tropey, right? All we have are tropes. Books are just a massive collection of tropes. So worry more instead about why this is your story and how you want to tell it.
0: I really like what you said, um, especially tying it in back with voice. In my own reading, I find the same way. Um, If the author can sell me on why this angst is... supposed to be interesting then even if i read angst before in a ya novel i'll still like it but that does bring up another question um for me can a story still be a good story but be unpublishable or is there a difference and does it necessarily matter
3: absolutely right um i've read many wonderful stories incredible stories that are unpublishable because the market won't bear it or the audience isn't there or publishers don't have a way to publish it right um You know, I had I had a project recently that, you know, was a very challenging story in a lot of ways that um, dealt with a lot of trauma, dealt with sexual violence, dealt with like all these things that are usually topics I don't even like to deal with um, as a professional or as a reader. But this one really grabbed me. And, you know, I sat the writer down. I was like, there's every chance in the world we're never going to get there with this story. It is a difficult book. I think it's an incredible book. I think it's an important book. Um, but you know, it took us about two years. Um, and then finally someone was like, wait, no, I thought there wasn't a way to do this, but I can't stop thinking about it. So let's, let's figure it out. Right. Um, but you know, that was a book that I very much thought there was a chance that it was unpublishable, no matter how much I liked it, no matter how brilliant I thought it was. Um, the reality is publishing is a business, right? Uh, people think that, you know, people talk sometimes like there's a, there's a right to be published, right? Like, um, you know that's where I think the censorship conversation comes up, where people feel like they're because they wrote their story because they know their story is important, then they have a right to have it published and for people to read it. And you know, yes, your story, you have a right to your story, you have a right to find an audience, but the publishers don't have to be part of that process, right? Um, they are businesses who are making business decisions that are fundamentally about can we make money off of the words that you put down on a page, and it is that cold. And it is that, um, uh, you know, sort of, that that's the reality of the situation, right? And I think when people lose sight of that is when it gets very complicated. Um, so, you know, it's important to remember that the publisher, at the end of the day, they're your colleagues. You can be friends with individuals at your publisher, but uh, the company's not on your side. The company's on their side and they're looking to make money. And that's a thing to always keep in mind when you're dealing with a publisher.
1: This is such an uplifting conversation, but it's true. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's not always bad, right? It just just be aware of why they're in it and what their goal is. And then, you know, remember that your relationship with them is about finding ways that they can be profitable, right? And that doesn't mean that all the stuff I said before about telling your story doesn't matter. I think that's the best way to get to a point of profitability in my posit in my opinion. But, um, you know, the fact that a company is a company, I think, is neither good nor bad. It's just the way the world works. Well, I mean, I think capitalism, <laughs> that's a whole separate conversation.
0: So. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. I'm really excited to talk about this chapter this week. We, we thought it was fantastic. But a quick review of how we critique. We try to be non-prescriptive, which means we point out how things made us feel um, but leave it up to the author to figure out how to fix that. Now, Don Juan, you're an exception. As our guest today, you can let fly with whatever you'd like. <laughs> but if you'd like to check out the text of the submission and see all our notes while you're watching this um, panel, you can check on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com litnation And if you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So a summary for this week's submission. In a time when teleportation has become the dominant technology of the day and all other tech is restricted, Eliona tries to sell goods at a tech black market, only to find that she's walked into a trap. So, what are some things we liked about this chapter?
4: I think, I felt like the voice is really immediate and extremely distinct.
0: I'll second that. Especially the first line, I thought it was incredible. It's, um...
1: You'd think they'd learn, I said, rolling my eyes at the latest decapitation. There's so much in there. I feel like if you can slip decapitation into your first line, you're like, golden.
2: <laughs> well. especially in such like a nonchalant way, it's, it's not a, she's just like very casual about the decapitation, which I think is wonderful because we get a character, we have a problem and we have an attitude towards that problem. So we already have a lot of elements in that one sentence.
3: I think there's a lot of really wonderful detail to the world building. Um, one thing that I liked a lot was how her hearing aid uh, is out of power, right? And, you know, it, it really becomes this thing that runs through the section of, you know, she can't hear other people because she can't get new batteries for her hearing aid. And just the fact that she can't get new batteries raises so many interesting questions, right? Like, why, why can't, like, a hearing aid battery seems like it should be a very simple thing to get if you have the technology to have one you know, we're seeing advanced technology all around this, then why is this an issue for her? And, you know, I think it, it's a great way just to like tease out some of the conflict in the world and tease out some of the, the challenges that this character is going through and, and where she's coming from.
2: I completely agree. Even the detail about Jackson's tracker anklet in there, it's so casual. It never really feels like it's info dumping and it, it's easy to keep the reader's attention that way.
0: I like the main character's um, relationship with Tech throughout the whole submission. We find out that she dismantles Tech, that her whole apartment and the appliances are just stripped, and she's um, all up in this black market technology. I just thought that was such an interesting idea, and I like that it was consistent throughout the whole submission.
3: Yeah, and it really led to that really lovely relationship between her and her sister, right? Like that kind of squabbly, semi-parental, semi-sisterly uh, kind of um you know, I can't believe you did this thing again vibe to it. And I thought that worked really nicely.
4: Speaking of consistency, I really liked how, like, you know, like the tech thing is so pervasive in the voice of this character, but also like the, the dystopian elements of the setting that like, you know, this isn't just like um, decorations on this story. This is like through the entire piece. It's just detail after detail. Oh, this is not a nice place to live.
1: I really liked especially that um, we have teleportation versus it seems like most other types of technology. They're worried about limiting parts getting out into the society. And I thought that was so interesting that in order to get a new part that you had burned out or broken, you had to turn in the old one that was broken. That says a whole lot about the society. I thought that was really cool.
0: Okay, I think we have to talk about the elephant in the room. And for me, that's the the just the gut-wrenching ending and i'm not going to give any spoilers away but i really love how this author structured the chapter so we find we get inconsequential details we think are inconsequential just in the flow of the narrative you know the color of someone's socks and um the bracelet and then at the end when those details come back again in a horrible circumstance um we have no idea what's going on but we we know what's going on i don't know if that made
4: sense (laughs) I think it's extremely noteworthy that inside these 10 pages, there is a spoiler that I don't want to tell people because I want them to read it and run into it and run into it themselves.
2: Just one other detail that I particularly liked. There's a... I guess I like how even though we are in this very strange um, setting, we have a lot of normal details. So there's this one point where the main character's friend is texting her and the text keeps getting auto-corrected even though we still have teleportation and it's a really funny thing but it also was kind of grounding for me because it made me think oh you know this is still a world i recognize um i just thought it was very funny
3: yeah she does a really good job of like or uh, i'm not sure the author um the voice does really, or the narration does a really good job of establishing the technology level, right? Where you have toasters that are mechanical, but also you have teleportation, and you get the sense of like how this world is put together. And then, you know, the texting kind of reinforces that. You know, there's so, there's a tactile, a tactile element to the technology that I think really helps with the world, but only helps with your sense of, you know, the main character's relationship to it and all of that.
0: I thought the descriptions of, um, the world around her and the characters around her were really nice too. Uh, a line I particularly liked was when she says, some polo shirt with a clipboard was honing in with his friendly eyebrows on. And you can immediately tell um, how snarky she feels about this authority figure, and I just thought it was funny. Um, if we're good to move on to things that might need a second look, what are some, some things we noticed in this submission?
3: So I think it's always really challenging to start with dialogue, right? Even even when we get context immediately, um, you know, you throw someone right in to, you know, you don't have any context for who's speaking, why they're speaking. And I think uh, audi- or a lot of writers over-index on this idea of like, oh, it'll seem interesting and cool to be like, who is talking and figure that out. When really most... Uh, so an opening page is a lot about building trust, right? It's about building authorial... Um, authority. And telling the reader, you know, you're going to be okay in my hands, I'm going to tell you a good story, and you're going to feel taken care of, right? Like, uh, one of my clients talks about it with this metaphor of hospitality, right? A book is an act of hospitality, and you're inviting someone into your home. And when you do that, you want to make sure that they know that they're going to be safe, they're going to be cared for that, you know, they're going to get the experience that. Um, they it, right? So when you start with dialogue, what, sometimes what you're saying is actually, um, I'm not going to tell you anything about the situation. I'm just going to throw a lot of information and you. you have to figure it out, right? And it's not necessarily saying that you need to handhold everyone through everything, um, but it can be very jarring. Um, so, you know, I don't like giving prescriptive advice. And, you know, I know that there are books that start with dialogue that are wonderful books. There's a way to do it that works really, really well. Uh, for me, this threw me a little bit because there were two sort of like very twisty things about this opening line. And the opening line is, I know some of you liked it and, you know, I think it works for the reason that you liked it, but also for me overall it was two things that really threw me without any context, right? You have the dialogue and then you have the decapitation thing. And, I'm, you know, by the end of that paragraph, I'm like, I still don't know what's going on here. I don't know what they're talking about. I'm probably, I'm already losing interest because I don't know what's happening. Right. So what you need to be doing in that first paragraph is not really asking questions, but giving people reasons to keep going. Right. Um, and those are related, but slightly different things. Uh, so for me, I would start in a diff- slightly different place um, and sort of figure out a way to sort of ramp up the world building a little bit more slowly. Um, you know, the things that I really liked about how the technology in the world building they really work is that it can be very detailed, and very tactile. But then every time they would zoom out and talk about the teleportation technology, I-, I kept coming back to, I don't really know what this is. I don't know how it works. I know it changed the whole world, but I don't really get, they, they kind of info dump that material, right? And um, we get a sense that there's some big authority out there. There's some problem with the technology. But it, it felt so disconnected from the parts of the technology that I liked that I wanted that to be introduced more uh, in, a, in a slower, more considered way over time, right? I, I feel like this was this chapter rushed a little bit. Um, and I would love for it to, to take a little bit slower of a roll, I think. That said, I'm going to immediately contradict myself. And I think... It also The story is starting a little too early. Like, this all felt very preambly to me, and nothing really happened in the story until the end, right? So, for me, if I'm 10 pages in and nothing's happened, and I don't really know what the arc and type of book this is, then I'm already out at this point. So, I think jumping ahead to the conflict that's happening at the end of this chapter. And really sort of starting with that scene in the market. Like, we don't need this home scene. We don't need the thing with her and jacks. We just really need to be in that market and seeing what's happening there. And then I think we're off to the races at that point. Um, obviously, that requires a big rethinking of how you're introducing characters and world building. But um, I think this sort of like start of the day, it's not a wake up scene, but it kind of feels like a waking up scene. You know what I mean? Um, so jumping ahead, time skipping forward a little bit might help a lot with that. Sorry, I know there's a lot of things in a row there,
4: but if I can if I can piggyback off of the the teleportation kind of feeling disconnected from everything else that was being described, I'm gonna get extremely nerdy here. But that's what I'm here for, so I have to say it. So for me, my sci brain wanted to know we don't need all the details at this point about how the teleportation works, but I wanted some hints because what was what was getting me is that we have a lot of dystopian stuff. Like, you know, there's there's not enough power around to recharge the battery in your ear thing, but they have teleportation available for everyone. The reason why that, that throws me is because at least in most sci-fi interpretations of how teleportation works, you need, like, insane amounts of power, right, to make it happen. You're either, like, restructuring someone's atoms or opening a wormhole or, you know, things that require literally astronomical amounts of power. So my brain was wondering, so what what's the disconnect why why is obviously you know anyone can use the teleporters but so you know where else where else is this utopian abundance of energy going if not there like i totally get that like the etc the the big bad organization who's controlling technology like they could be deliberately restricting stuff but our protag is obviously smart enough that she would know that that's going on so i just so I'm using a lot of words and I think it could have like a really easy solution of just like, you know, ah, those dang things that doesn't have to be this way, you know, that kind of thing. But anyway, I had to throw that out there. I apologize.
1: Mm-hmm. So when we actually get to the market scene, we have our character trying to follow these kind of cryptic instructions to find out where the black market for that day is going to be. So she can trade her um, electronic things that she needs in order to build something. But there's this point at which another character appears and then tries to lead her toward it, the market. And then a bunch of stuff happens. She gets a bunch of texts from her friend and then the authorities start closing in and then her friend is like yelling in text, they know who you are. And I got a little bit confused at that point about what was actually happening, especially with the person who's leading her because she's got like these long nails that are like coming for our main character, but then the character kind of disappears. So I was never actually sure if if that character was trying to help or if they were part of the trap or even where she went. Did you guys feel that way at all?
2: I totally agree.
0: I agree. Um, I think for me, part of the issue was there are a couple things being hinted at um, skirted around for one, her um, connection with the black market. We find out that she's going to be caught. But we don't know by who, but maybe she does. Um, and then there's the thing going on with her friend, but because, um, there was so much being hinted at, but not said directly. I wasn't sure how many problems she was dealing with. I wasn't sure if the problem with the authorities was separate from this trap she was walking into, or if they were the same thing.
3: Yeah, I, I think so often, you know, people get so excited about like, "Ooh, I can do a twist, right? Where I think so much of the time, more tension just comes from telling people what the situation is, right? Like, the thing that I liked about that scene was I understood the tension of her being afraid to ask people or give away that she was looking for the black market because that would get her in trouble, right? So when I knew all the pieces, then I felt tension. When she was trying to surprise me, then I kind of lost that and just became a little confused, right? So a lot of times I'm in the camp of just, just tell people stuff and then make sure that there are conflicting interests in a scene. And then that's where the tension comes from.
0: I think that might be our time. Am I right? Okay, awesome. To this author, thank you so much for submitting. We loved reading your work. And Don Juan, thank you for coming on the show. It was great to have you.
3: It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Um, our next guests will be Jody Meadows and Cynthia Hand, two of the three authors who collaborated to write the New York Times bestsellers My Lady Jane, My Plain Jane, and My Calamity Jane, which is coming out on June 3rd. If you'd like a first chapter critique from then, get us your work by May 14th. Thank you to our intern and the social media goddess, Lindsay Owens, and Alan Sinkster, who is our magical sound designer. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome, or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on social media or email us at listservicepodcast at gmail.com. For Litservice, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.